One thing we know about West Coast music, its following is much, much bigger than its name implies. It's more like global coast music, due to the fact that diehard fans are found at every corner of the globe. At the heart of it, you'll find a man who continues to stoke the fires of a sound that is a sophisticated mixture of R&B, rock, pop, and jazz. Grammy-winning Jay Graydon. His name is found in the credits of tracks and albums that have gone gold, platinum, and even multi-platinum. With longtime collaborations with friends like David Foster, George Benson, Al Jarreau, and Steely Dan, Graydon has positioned himself as one of the most creative songwriters, producers, and session guitarists on the LA scene, while continuing to pave his own road with Nashville resident and writing partner Randy Goodrum. They're the brains behind Jar, a collaboration of two of the best musical heads in the industry who have released Scene 29, an album that any West Coast music fan most certainly has in their audio collection. From airplay for the planet to Earth, Wind, and Fire's After the Love Has Gone, Graydon has delivered just what West Coast music fans have asked for. Inside Music Cast welcomes Jay Graydon. Hey Jay, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, guys. Hey Jay, you know, just to start off, you've done it all, man. You're a guitarist, arranger, <laughs> producer, recording artist, songwriter, even an engineer. But you had to start somewhere. And let's take us back to your father's Los Angeles television show, the the Joe Graydon Show, which I think was the first talk and music variety show in Los Angeles, right? Yeah, he it was. He had his first show was in the late '40s, and I've seen. I've got a video of a kinescope of one of those somewhere. Uh-huh. But um, in 1950, that was a show at night. I think it was a half an hour show once a week. Yeah. Then uh, he switched to a daytime show. I think it was like 10 in the morning, yeah. a two-hour show. And um, uh, on my second birthday, I was on his show. Right, right. And, you know, on the Bebop album, my, my album entitled Bebop, <laughs> I had the recording of that particular show, some, uh, you know, and I included it in the beginning of the record, but I'll tell you how this record, all the stage that this recording went through. Some fan of my dad's had recorded the show, just the audio, on a wire recorder. Uh-huh. I assume he must have tapped off the TV speakers or <laughs> maybe even had a, um, um, a, like a, a, you know, line level output from his TV, maybe he was a electronic guy, you know. Yeah, right, right. But anyway, it was recorded to wire. Then it was transferred to seventy-eight acetates, <laughs> and um, I ended up with those acetates. I still have them. Wow! And That's... then I must have gone through um, a bunch of different generations of tape over the years. Probably seven and a half IPS, and oh I don't know. Maybe maybe even gone to cassette at one point, but. Yeah. The good news is I have it, and it ended up in the beginning of the bebop record. You know, my dad asked me what kind of music I like, and I tell him bebop. Yeah. yeah. And bang, we're into the record. You know, it's pretty. <laughs> I mean, I don't even relate to it, man. I was two years old. I don't remember that. Well, you but know, I'm glad I have it. Well, speaking of your dad, you just recently released a Christmas song that you and your dad recorded back in 1996 uh, called "On This Christmas Eve," and apparently. You know, when that was recorded, you, you would release some samples somewhere, and word got out about the song, and it was being requested by, by fans to release it. So we're glad you did. It's a wonderful song. And what took you so long to decide to put yeah, it out really. there? <laughs> all right, here's the story on that. Um, first of all, there's hardly been any, any songs written about Christmas Eve. Um, uh, my dad had told me that years ago. <laughs> it's true. And um, he'd recorded it. It wasn't a hit. You know, sometime, I guess, in the late 40s, he'd recorded it. By the way, my dad had a huge hit called Again. But in those days, it was the band leader that got that was the artist. My dad was just a hired singer, uh-huh. and Gordon Jenkins was the um, the band leader. But anyway, my dad was a great singer, and he was on the hit parade in the middle of the late forties. He was also an FBI agent. 
Mm-hmm. And he worked for Hoover and directly in Hoover's office. Holy cow. Wow. And then, well, I'm getting off the point, but I'll get back to this. <laughs> but right. Hoover saw my dad on the, on the uh, hit parade one night, went to work the next day and said, told my dad, you better quit that job. No FBI agent of mine's going to be a <laughs> singer on a TV show. You know, the guy was like Hitler, you know. <laughs> and um, my dad says, uh, Mr. Hoover, um, I only have uh, two weeks left as an FBI agent, so I don't think I'll be quitting and, you know. <laughs> All right, so anyway, my dad had written a song on this Christmas Eve, and he recorded it. The Mills Brothers had recorded it. No hit with the Mills Brothers. No hit with anybody. Hmm. I remember hearing that song when I was a kid. Um, you know, my dad had played it for me, and um, I always liked the song. The song was originally in 3-4. Okay. And then I decided to do something cool for my dad, and my dad was getting on in years, and when he was 77, uh, I decided to, ta- to do a track of the song, but put it in four, what was actually with a triplet feel, and um, which I did, and then I had to teach my dad how, how to phrase the melody. He was 77 when he sang this. Wow. And um, I had to teach my dad how to phrase the melody, you know, over the 4-4, four, four, you know, time right, instead right. of the 3-4 time. Right, right. Here, here I'm teaching my dad how to sing a song, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> Role reversal, right? <laughs> right. And this is now, this is in the era of ADATs. Uh, there was no auto-tune function yet. True. Yeah. And I'd, yeah, I probably recorded my dad on five or six tracks. There was one line of the bridge that he, that he never sang the way I intended him to sing it. So I sang that one line. I mean, it's kind of weird. What am I doing in the song on one line, right? <laughs> um, and... But, I, you know, at the time, it was just a demo. I was never planning on releasing this stuff. But yeah, as you yeah. can see, over the years, I released a bunch of demos just because I had them, you yeah, know? Yeah, right, right. You know, it's so anyway, a, that's the story with, uh, with you know, my dad singing, and singing the tune. Oh, yeah. You know what? Uh, a lot of our guests uh, recently, they, they've really just told us that they're just taking advantage of, of the opportunities that the, the web provides and just putting up stuff the, up there that people either have never heard or some gems that you might have stashed away that, you know, your fan base might want to hear and, and everybody's just uploading that stuff and it really generates uh, a lot of interest and demand don't you agree yes um you know we're in an era man where where the web is uh artists like me and mm-hmm. everybody else out there that's an artist using the web man is the whole game it's record stores are over as you know yeah. radio is over for anything but you know uh whatever the watered down pop of the month is right or the year, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's all about using the Internet, and I'm learning more all the time, and, right. mm-hmm. you know, and I want this stuff heard. Why not, man, right? You're right, you're right. There used to be you know, I mean, the past and past to present album, do you guys have that CD? Yeah, we do have that one. Well, those are all demos from the from starting in the early, well, they were pretty much all from the 70s. All right, you, you have a Sony commercial on there as well, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll tell you how that came about. <laughs> I had a Sony 4-track, uh, uh, 854-4S. Uh-huh. It was the same, in the same era that the Tascam 4-track came out, but this machine was much better. Uh-huh. And I wanted free gear, man. I was broke, man. <laughs> you know, I was working a six-nighter. You know, I was maybe making ten grand a year, and that's barely enough to eat and pay the rent back then. <laughs> right. So I wanted to see if there was any way I could hustle some free gear from these guys. So I wrote a, a jingle commercial with Harry Garfield just to see what we could pull off. I pitched it to him. Obviously, that it, it, it never took. You know, because like every other uh, commercial, I mean, every commercial that ever goes down is through an ad agency and through the proper channels. I just took a shot. <laughs> but um, anyway, it was pretty, pretty pretty fun. That particular album you were referring to, the past to present, those were all uh, 
Those were all songs that basically were sitting in a vault, correct? They had been produced and recorded back in the 70s, and you just decided to re-release those? I, they were never released. Those were all right. demos. A bunch of them, there was a few demos there that were uh, demos for the, you know, for the Airplay album. Okay. Uh, she Waits for Me. Actually, it, yeah. that didn't intend to be a demo for the Airplay album. We ended up recording it, but it was pre-David Foster. Uh, Greg Matheson played piano on that track. Uh, let's see, Should We Carry On? Yeah. That's the song, that's on there, and that demo's what got us the deal. And um, there were some others on there. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a song called Count On Me that's just, I still think it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a song called um, Throw a Little Bit of Love My Way. Okay. Okay. And there was all, all kinds of stuff on there, man. You know, I'm like a pack rat. I don't, it's hard for me to get rid of stuff. And, you know, so I had all the tapes, man. So That's cool. when I went to Pro Tools, I had all the tapes baked so they would play. Right. You know, I don't, no need to get in that discussion. That's a half an hour. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You know, and I decided to release all that stuff, man. Why not? I needed to learn Pro Tools. Now was a, a good time to do it with all these old tunes, you right. know. As your musical taste was sort of developing, Jay, um, you know, what were who were your influences? I mean, growing up, I mean, uh, granted, your your dad was obviously a, a a main you know stakeholder in in what you learned and 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 steered you towards it. But uh, but uh, tell me, who influenced you? Well, I I mean, you know, in, in a brief, I mean, I started off in a, playing in, in a surf band, you know. Um, so at that particular point, the Ventures and Dick Dale, of course, were influencing me. By the way, it was surf and white R&B. And when I tell you white R&B, it couldn't be any whiter. <laughs> I mean, we did James Brown tunes, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, man. This is, you know, somebody should have told us to stop, you know? <laughs> but anyway, um, oh, we used to play for the Marines at Camp Pendleton on the weekends. That was interesting. Really? Um, that was in the middle 60s. Um, yeah, you know, during Vietnam, man, ah, that's a whole other story. Oh, but wow. <laughs> anyway, um, then from then, uh, from the surf and R&B thing, I started uh, listening to jazz, and that changed everything. Yeah, really. And then Joe Pass, of course, was a big influence. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, then in the early 70s, man, what really blew my mind was Stevie Wonder's album, Music of My Mind. Oh, yeah, right. yeah. What a phenomenon, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I, uh, the guy with the guy's always been good, you know, previous to that, but he'd come into his own. In pretty much every album from then on, the guy's just, un, he's, a, he's the best songwriter, man, that ever lived. Uh, not uh, lyrically, I may, I'm, not, not lyrically, but musically, you know, melody-wise and chord change-wise, it's just so creative, man. Mm-hmm. And, and he changed everything with the synth sounds. I went out and bought an ARP 2600 as soon as I could afford it, and he was a big influence. Yeah. You know, and I mean, there's been a lot of others over the years, but I think Stevie's my main influence over anything. Right. Funny, I don't really write like him. Right. I can't. I mean, I and I surely don't sing like him. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever have a chance to work with him? Yeah, um, on a Dionne Warwick album. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. He, we, I called him and asked him if he'd write a couple of tunes, and he said, "Yeah." And you know, we had, we we did it. We cut tracks for a couple of days. I remember. Um, I think that that was the time that the, and there was a, that girl. That, it wasn't released yet, and it was in the very beginning of the digital era. Mm-hmm. And Stevie had a Betamax that he had the audio recorded on, and he had an analog mix of that girl. It's either that girl or God, I can't remember the song. It's one of those. Hmm. 
But anyway, he brought, brought, had his people bring in the Betamax player and the analog tape, and he was raving about how good this digital you know, Betamax format sounded, uh-huh. right? Right. I thought it sounded horrible. <laughs> it, it was grainy. It's like fingers on the blackboard, you know? Who knows what the sampling rate was on the blackboard. And, you know, the, and we, and we played the analog version, and it was just so much more musical. Yeah. And, I mean, I got into an argument with him about this. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to say, man, you know, you've got the best ears on the planet. Your, your ears are way more sensitive than, than anybody else's, you know, because you lost your sight. You know, there's so much more power to your ears. How can you think this sounds good? <laughs> you know? So did I he, didn't tell him that. So did he buy it? I was it? thinking did, that. <laughs> did he buy it? <laughs> no, he's like an argumentative <laughs> cat, you know? But I, and it, I mean, we were having fun. We were sparring back and forth. Why? Yeah. You know, we were both, you know, going into Eagle Land or whatever. I don't know. I was just telling what I heard, you know. Uh, you know what, what a talent. I mean, anybody who can write a song like, uh, uh, what is it, Sunshine of My Life uh, in the Dorian scale has got to be amazing, you know. He's out of his, he's, he's just the most phenomenal <laughs> writer of all time, man. If I was to have, if I could only listen to, you know, one person's music, it would be his. Wow. Yeah. He's just, he just is ridiculous, man. Yeah. The best singer that ever lived, clearly. Yeah, you know, here's something. But this, and this is what I tell young singers. You know, singers that use vibrato at the end of every phrase or sing a lick at the, every, at the end of every phrase if they if they're, you know, can sing good yeah, R&B yeah. licks right. or, you know, always do the same at the end of every phrase. I go, you know, you, you, you're not taking full advantage of the program. Yeah. Listen to Stevie. He doesn't finish every phrase with a lick. Sometimes he holds a note long and pure with no vibrato. Right. A lot of times he'll vibrato a note. Sometimes he'll end with a lick. Dig all the possibilities and dig the taste, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. You so are. anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. But you, you know, you began uh, doing your session work in the late 60s, but bring us up to speed on how you were able to work your way into the session scene. Who were your yeah. connections at that time? Yeah. Well, when I was in the Don Ellis band in the late 60s, um, those are my first real record dates, you know, mm-hmm. recording on his albums. Mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of demos back then. I went to Valley College, and uh, everybody in the Valley College band, uh, big band, most everybody in the band was trying to stay out of the Army, or the band wouldn't have been as good as it was, you know, where we're trying to get a 2S deferment. So uh, most of these guys would have been on the road. It was still the, the end of the big band era. A lot of these guys would have been busy on the road. So anyway... Great band, great networking. Mm-hmm. There was a guy named Ray Jackson, a trombone player in the band, that was also a great arranger. He was one of the founders of the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band, great band back mm-hmm. then. Anyway, Ray used to do a lot of arrange a lot of demos for different people, so I was busy playing on his demos all the time. Okay. And the drummer on some of these demos was Al McKay, the guitar player in Earth, Wind, and Fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, Al had was playing, it played drums first. I did too as well, but that was never any good. Anyway, then Al switched to guitar. Great guitar player, Al, by mm-hmm. the way. So that got me going, and then just network, you know, networking got me, you know, more work here and there. I was playing a Don Ellis gig one time, and Dean Parks came to the gig. He knew the bass player in the Don Ellis band, Dave McDaniel, mm-hmm. and um, uh, Dean decided he'd recommend me for some record dates. So out of nowhere. I started getting calls, I mean, like major calls for all these Motown sessions. Okay. And one thing led to another, man, and, you know, in a very short period of time, you know, I was working two to four sessions a day, you know. Wow. Wow. And um, I also was the first guy with a pedal board and strobe tuner. Really? So it was like, hey, get the guy with all those effects. (laughs) 
you know? <laughs> yeah. That was yeah. that was one way I got work, you uh -huh. know? But um, I got to say, man, I loved playing record dates um, for about five years. Then it kinda, I kind of got burnt out, man. But, um, you know, because the, the, playing record sessions was 95% boredom, 5% sheer terror. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? you, get, you get, you're sitting there on a movie date, man, and all of a sudden the, here comes the, some chart, man, Count 80 bars and then play. And then count another 80 bars and play. You know? <laughs> hey, man, I couldn't even, I'd lose the count. I didn't know where I was at. Jump in, jump, jump in when you felt it, huh? Right. Put me in a rhythm section date. I shouldn't be here. Right. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I've got a question. You, you mentioned a lot of uh, the, the Motown records that you were working on. Uh, back then, I, I think, um, was that when when Motown had already moved to L.A.? And yeah. is that so? So Gordy already had planted there in L.A. and and the gigs were uh, were flowing and you were just a, a, a part of that, right? Yeah. Um, it was right in the beginning stages after Motown had come out here. Okay. Uh -huh. um, I remember a lot of those sessions well. Um, um, yeah. That's that's the story. Yeah, okay. And most some of the guys came out, like James Jamerson came out. Uh -huh. um, a bunch of the young guys came out. Ray Parker, uh, Sylvester Rivers at the time, Scotty Edwards. Um, I don't think any of the drummers came out. I can't remember. Yeah. The main drummer in those record dates was James Gatson or Ed Green. Sure, sure. Right. Yeah. Um, Sonny Burke, uh, Clarence McDonald. These yeah. are the piano players. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, John um, Barnes, I think his name was, good player. A lot of, a lot of great musicians. Yeah, and we just had Clarence McDonald on a couple of weeks ago. Mac is a great guy. Yeah, yeah. He's, I'm sure he was loaded with stories. Oh, he was. He was. Every every time we mentioned a name, he broke into a story. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I saw him about a year ago at a Jackie Robinson Foundation. We we all played the, the for the foundation stuff uh -huh. and. It was great to see him, man. We played how sweet it is, and I just and I just kept looking over at him, going, "Mac, man, you're playing your ass off." Yeah, he's yeah, <laughs> he's keeping busy these days. Hey, Jay, I'm looking. I'm holding in my hand three amazing albums that you worked on. In fact, you might hear the the vinyl. I've got my records here, my sleeves out. Um, <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> but uh, you can relate to that, I'm sure. But the, sure. The, there are three albums with for for Al Jarreau this time, Breaking Away and Jarreau, which are really sucked me into a whole new genre of of music when I got these back in the in the early '80s. And uh, how did you hook up with Al? These are just wonderful projects. Three three that you produced here for him. It might have been Foster that. Well, first of all, I already knew Al. Yeah. Because back in the uh, earlier days before, you know, when I was still working club gigs and barely surviving, I'd met Al, you know, he'd worked the local jazz gigs around, and it was before he'd hit any kind of action. And also, I'd, I actually hired him one time mm -hmm. to play in a band where we did a gig at a clothes store. <laughs> a what? A clothes store? <laughs> a clothes, a men's clothes store. Oh, okay, clothing store, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm not kidding, man. Greg Matheson was on the gig. I can't remember who else, but... Now, I already knew Al, but as far as me as the producer thing, I think they may have approached David Foster, and I think David told him to call me. And um, that's how it started. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, on the first record, and the This Time record... Yeah. I didn't do any writing on that record. Al had already had the songs together that he wanted to record. Sure. And but when we got around to the Breaking Away album, it was time to, for me to jump in there and start to do some writing. And 
you know, I must say that um, the Breaking Away album and the Jero album, there's some good stuff in those records. Oh, yeah, definitely. I still just uh, put these on, and, you know, I've got two teenage girls, and they even spend these vinyl albums, and they just love them to this day, you know. But I, I have one, I, I do have one um, one question regarding one of the tracks on, on Breaking Away, because this was the album that had the big hit, We're In This Love Together, that everybody everybody right. knows. It was a wonderful uh, tune. But you also recorded um, Dave Brubeck's Blue Rondo a la Turk. How did that even end, end up on this album? Because number one, in my opinion, it's 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 a very difficult song to, to musically and sonically, but vocally to attack this. How did that end up being on the album? Whose recommendation? I can't remember. Um, you know, on the This Time album, we did Spain. Yeah. And um, that's a whole story, boy. Oh, my goodness. That's a wonderful track. It is. It's um, a wonderful track. I, you know, Chick Corea and Stanley Clark played on the track, and then I erased them on purpose. Um, <laughs> they weren't cooperating, <laughs> and they didn't respect me at all. Hey, who's this young white cat that's doing this? You know, I walked into the studio, and Chick's piano setup was um, a stage Fender Rhodes, not a not the um, uh, suitcase type, and the stage Fender Rhodes don't doesn't have a preamp built in, uh-huh. so the tone is really dark. And he had to run it through some delay line, so whenever he hit a note, it would go bump, 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 through some kind of chorus. Right. I mean, delayed line thing. It was just terrible. Uh-huh. And I said, man, we got to lose all this stuff. And he gave me an attitude. <laughs> but we finally got that straight. Uh-huh. And so when we were playing the tune, man, Stanley was out of tune. And I said, Stanley, please tune up. He says, I just did. They were dicking <laughs> with me, man, and I didn't dig it at all. And they, they weren't cooperating. I had some specific ideas in mind, and they weren't cooperating. So I went up to Steve Gadd, and I said, Steve, I'm only going to be listening to you in the control room. I'm wiping these guys the second I get a good drum track. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I brought Larry Williams in that night yeah. in my studio, my little studio. We were recording the track somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, got, you know, worked Larry to death, but got a great part. Then brought Abraham Laborio the next day, and I got to tell you that track is smoking. It is. I mean, that is a wonder, wonderful. Uh, you know, if if our audience, anybody in our audience, if you're not uh, too familiar with Al Jarreau's best classic albums, uh, look look at look at these. These are just wonderful um, albums that uh, you produce. Congratulations. I mean, this stuff, this music's still relevant. That's amazing. You know. Hey man, I the one thing that I told Jarreau and every other artist I work with. I said, if you, I said, I, I'm working you hard. You know, I always got, I always got grief for making singers work too hard, putting them through the mill. Mm-hmm. You know, I want, I want the vocals in tune, and I want them to feel good. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the ultimate maximum, right? Yeah. I wasn't, you know, um, I wasn't um, sacrificing feel for pitch. I want it all. Right. So I told these people, I said, you know, we've. You listen to this stuff in 20 or 30 years, and I bet you it'll still hold up. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, I think I, w- I humbly state I was right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, yeah. so uh, I got off the track. I'll get back on track now. <laughs> so Spain, I-, I think Spain was my idea. I can't remember. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Yeah. But then for the next album, I said, okay, well, we did Spain in the last record. We've got to have something interesting in-, in, a- in a jazz category Yeah. that... that- you know, that kind of falls into that area. Yeah. I'm not trying to totally keep a theme here, but it'd be nice. Yeah. And I don't know if Al thought of Blue Rondo. It may have been Tom Canning. Yeah. It may have been me. I don't know. But it's sure, uh, the song's a bitch to sing, man. Oh, yeah. That, that thing's amazing. But You but, know, and it, it came off, though. But, you know, Al, Al was still kind of young, and he could handle it. <laughs> yeah. No, no. He's, a, he's an amazing vocalist. That's neat. Oh, yeah, he is. 
including Al Jarreau, you've, you've played with so many other amazing artists, and I'm going to name a few here, like uh, Barbara Streisand and Diana Ross. You know, you've played with Steely Dan, Christopher Cross, Holland Oates, Air Supply, George Benson, Manhattan Transfer, you know, and the list is, is endless. But uh, I wanted to ask if, there, if there's one common factor about your style and the way that you play that has, has attracted so many of these artists to you. Is there a particular thing that, these, that you know, artists latch onto you for? I don't know. Um, you know, I just play like I play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm kind of versatile. I can play in different styles, I guess, fairly well, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, when I was a when I was a first call studio player, um, you know, you call the first call guys. That's yeah. what typically happens. Right. So, yeah. you know, I don't. I, I really don't have to answer that, man. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Probably um, wasn't a fair question to ask. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I'll tell you one thing though. When, when you start producing records, I, you know, it's like I would have been, I, when I was doing record dates all day and night, I was playing 10 to 12 hours a day. You know, that's, that's practicing. You're, you're playing all the yeah. time. You're using what you know, you right, know. Right, right. And you develop more stuff as you go along, and you're just honing it. When I started producing records, I went from playing 10 to 12 hours a day to not playing at all for months at a time. Yeah. I mean, when I'm not in the middle of, you know, I'll do some guitar overdubs in a record, maybe play a solo or two, but over four or five months of making a record, how many hours did I play guitar? Not much. Yeah. And there's no time to practice. Let me ask you about something real quick. You know, you just mentioned that you practice so hard. You know, you're working 10, 12 hours a day right, to hone yeah. in your skills. You know, this obviously, you know, we're, we're several years down the road from that particular time when, when that was really relied upon. You know, studio musicians were so relied upon for their expertise and what they were doing in the studio. Nowadays, you know, the, there is a studio scene, but it's just not what it was then. Are, are cats still practicing like they used to? I mean, are they still working as hard as you did in your, you know, in, in that studio scene day when, when you guys were doing so much tracking for so many different artists? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the jazzers practice. They got to man. If you're going to yeah. be a good yeah. jazzer, you got to practice. Right. And most of my friends are jazzers. Yeah. So, yeah, there it's there was the kind of practicing that we were doing when we were doing four, three, four dates a day was practicing while we're playing. That is a sort of practicing. Right. We were we were playing so much. Now that there's much less work, of course, if guys are, you know, like I say, that most of my friends are jazzers, they are practicing. Yeah, yeah, it's a different scene, man. I was at yeah. the heyday of doing record dates, but and I got out before it got me out. When I moved on to producing and songwriting full time, uh-huh. I was still at the top of my studio game. I could have mm-hmm. ended up doing it for years to come. Yeah, but I always told the guys that you know there's going to be a new breed of guys just like us. That are yeah. waiting to take over our positions. We're like baseball players, man. Yeah. We get a short run here. Exactly. You know. Mm-hmm. You know. But, you know. Back to the thing about after I started producing and and you know writing full time, you know my guitar playing. I mean suffered after a few years. You know I'm not hardly playing at all. It was. It's not an easy feat. Every time I go back to playing guitar again, like on the new Jar album that that's out now. Sure. Right. You know. I mean, I had to practice for like a, a week or two. And, you know, before I start playing solos and stuff, and then I'd take a break and go on and do another stuff in the record, I'd have to come back and start playing, practicing again for at least a week. It's like I pick up the guitar, it's a foreign object, man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is no easy feat. But I humbly right. say, I probably played some of the best stuff I've ever played on the Jar record. I don't even know where it came from, man. Right. right. You know, you've been working with, with Randy Goodrum for, for years. 
And, um, you know, in, in Scene 29, which is the title of, of the last album, I believe you're working on a new one right now currently. Yeah. Um, but how, how did you, um, you know, conceive this project? Well, you know, who said, hey, let's, it, it's time for, for us to collaborate on this record. I mean, Randy was at that time in Nashville, or I think, and is in Nashville right now. Yeah. But how, how, did, uh, how did this come to be that uh, Jar uh, materialized? Randy is a prolific songwriter. This guy's life is writing songs. And when he's working, he's a workaholic. He loves to work. So he would call me from time to time and go, hey, man, let's write. I go, man, I don't, I don't, I, I don't write for what? I turn on the radio. I have nothing to do with that. Well, let's just write and see what we come up with. I said, okay. So he comes to town. I had a couple of ideas, one of them being what ended up being the song, Your Heartbreak. And uh, if you see the videos all over YouTube, if you, you, oh, know, yeah. you go to jgraden.com uh, or jarzone.com, mm-hmm. And the video's right there, and it it's explains wonderful. how the songs start, you know, how we got into writing the song. But sure. So we wrote the tune, and then we wrote one other. I don't know what the other one was. I can't remember right now. And I said, you know, or Randy may have said, you know, this sounds like maybe we should be a band. And I go, hey, man, I've got nothing to do. Let's do it. Yeah. So um, hence the beginning of JAR. And if you haven't figured out what JAR stands for by now... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's Jay and Randy. Hey, oh, I really? never figured. Oh, okay. Now I know. Jeez. It's a tough one. Yeah, that, that's, that is tough. <laughs> and Randy came up with that, and I dug it, man. I like the way it looks. Capital yeah. J, small A, capital right. R. It's cool. It works. Yeah, but anyway, so Randy and I started writing, and I said, Randy, you know, I don't know. We're not going to, you know, we're we're too old to even hope we get radio. We could maybe gear this thing to smooth jazz or whatever. But, you know, still, even that radio is corporate now, and it's almost impossible to get it. So let's just make the kind of record we want, man. You know, if if it has to be compared to anything, it it would be compared to Steely Dan in the fact that there are, it's pop, but there's a lot of chord changes, and it kind of hinges on jazz. Mm -hmm. And the lyrics are intellectual, and they're... There are hardly any love songs. They're about other topics, you know? Right. Yeah. Like someone's hair. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, which is a, would you have to talk to us about? You're going to have to ask Randy about that one. <laughs> well, I, I just got to ask, who is Glenn? Uh, you're going to have, have to ask Randy about and that And if you one. haven't heard the album, this is for the audience, if you haven't heard the album, there's a, there's a track in the album called <laughs> Glenn's Hair. And yeah. if you look at the lyrics, I've got the lyrics here somewhere. Yeah. I shouldn't read those. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, I'm going to read three lines of it just for the okay. heck of it. Okay, Rick, I mean, yeah, here it is. Glenn's ahead. hair. The first three lines. Glenn's hair is gone. He's out to fool the whole world. His weave is strong. <laughs> <laughs> is that a haiku? Is that a haiku? The line, um, are his follicles dead? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've got to talk to Randy about this. I'm not the lyricist. I'm the idea guy a lot of times. A lot of the title <laughs> concepts of the song I came up with, but... Randy is the lyricist. I don't write lyrics at all. Well, you're going to have to hook us up with him because he's next on the interview, okay? Hey, man, he'll he'll gladly do it. Uh, And this was his idea. He came in with this idea. And I got to tell you, man, I laughed my ass off. (laughs) Now, here's the good thing. I will say something that is majorly in his defense, okay? Okay. Randy's bald, so he can write about bald guys. Yeah, which people will find out by watching a Heartbreak uh, uh, on the video. So you'll see Randy right there, right? Right. <laughs> that's that's pretty stinking funny. Uh, and, yeah, man, I, that's the only song that's really over the edge funny. Everything else is pretty serious, you know? And by the way, the song Scene 29 yeah. 
is about film noir movies and movies of the 30s and 40s. That's mm-hmm. what I thought, yeah. I'm an avid collector of those kind of movies, okay. and I'd given Randy a bunch of movies to watch and baited him with some lines, and he found some lines in his own, and mm-hmm. it's just cute, but it's about film noir. You know, my nickname is Jake the Rake. Okay. And there's an actual <laughs> character in a movie called Killer, The Killers named Jake the Rake. Who, who I was, who, uh, when I was 16, I was in a band with a guy named Bob Hogan's great piano player. And he says, I just saw this movie last night, and there's a character in it named Jake the Rake. And I never, never forgot that. And when I started getting into film noir and I saw the movie, I saw the character, and I thought, oh, that's cool. So Randy used that in the lyric, you know. But yeah. anyway, um, it's a fun little tune. Yeah, well, one, another cool. track that I kind of latched on to uh, on the album was Esquire. And, uh, you know, I, I love the feel of that track, and I especially love the way you ended that, that song with that blazing guitar solo. That, yeah. that was great. We have no rules. We, you know, we're intentionally trying to make these little epics, you know, within the song, you know, different sections. Right. You know, you don't expect a lot of things that happen. Yeah. You know what Esquire is about? It's about a really slimy lawyer. So when you're reading the lyric on that thing, I mean, you know, born as a human, uh, innocent up to the age of five, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. You know, you don't know. You get to the chorus and you think this guy's the biggest slime ball on the planet. And then the last line of the chorus is first name, last name, comma, Esquire. You Esquire, know, every that's lawyer right. Ends with Esquire. Esquire at the end of his name. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so, I mean, you know... And I baited Randy with that, um, long story why, but I was, had to deal with one of the worst um, lawyers of all time. Uh, it, it was just horrible. <laughs> so he was the influence to that song. So. Well, Jay has uh, graciously allowed us to peer into the new Jar album, Scene 29. And since we're talking about the track Esquire, here's a little uh, sample of the track that Jay has provided for us. And that was a sample of the track Esquire from Jar, the latest release from today's guest, Jay Graydon. There was one track on the on the album, it's called The Cabo Cad, in which you and Randy uh, pretty much traded solos. Talk to us about that a little bit. Okay, first of all, I told Randy that uh, we got to start by the, the Cabo Cad is um, uh, Olivia, Olivia Newton-John had a boyfriend who faked his death. <laughs> 
supposedly. I remember that. Okay, the guy was on a fishing boat. Yeah. And, you know, this is local news in California. It was probably national news at some point. Well, uh-huh. it was when it made it out of Dateline. And so uh, Randy and I both know Olivia, and we had both known this story. And then I told Randy, I watched Dateline last night, and they have uh, interviewed a bunch of people in Mexico. And this guy that supposedly, oh, you know, drowned at sea was very much alive, being spotted all over Mexico by a bunch of different people. And once again, this resurfaced again. More people have spotted him recently. So anyway, I told that to Randy. That's all I needed to say. Next day, he's got a lyric in the, the Cabo Cad. So it's about this guy, okay? Yeah. Let's stop for a quick second and give everyone listening a quick sample of the Cabo Cad so they know exactly what we're talking about here, and then we'll continue with more of this discussion. This is the Cabo Cad. was a sample of the Cabo Cad from the recently released Jar album, Scene 29, from Jay Graydon and Randy Goodrum. And uh, so, Jay, tell us a little bit about how you and Randy collaborated on this from a distance. I mean, you being in L.A. and, and Randy being out there in Nashville. This was, um, this was really fun because I'm nocturnal. You know, you're, it's morning for me right now. And <laughs> on the other hand, uh, it's almost Randy's bedtime in Nashville. <laughs> Right. So he works all day. When we're, when we're working on a song, without getting into the whole process, you know, audio files get swapped, traded back, back and forth all the time uh, through an FTP side of Randy. Right, yeah, right. So for the solo thing, you know, when we decided we were going to trade solos, I said, I don't want to play four bars, skip four bars, play four bars, skip four bars. So the way I think we got to do this is I play four bars, you know, I'll upload it to you, you play four bars the next morning. You upload that to me. <laughs> that night, I play four bars. So every day, we're both getting our four bars in, but it's going to take a little while. Yeah, really. It's going to take a few days. Yeah. Well, that's what happened. That's it is in real time, um, but just in, but slowly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, we have a correspondence, Brian Pearson. I think you, you know that name. Um, but Brian actually was, was asking that question. How does that work technologically? You know, uh, you know, working with, uh, you know, from L.A. and Nashville. Well, how was that coming together? And I think the FTP is really the answer on that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And Randy's got a good site. It's fast. Uh-huh. I'll tell you how the record goes. You know, we just, 
Um, we just finished. We both have a house in a town called Cambria, which is a, a beautiful, um, uh, co- uh, you know, ocean town in Central California, right near Hearst Castle. Uh-huh. And so we went up there uh, specifically to write songs for the next record. And we have some really adventurous stuff. It's going to even get more musical on the next one, man. There's some really cool stuff. Anyway, okay. so we we wrote for a couple of weeks. Now what happens is Randy will be back in Nashville in a few days or a week or so, something like that. He's responsible to play the piano parts, and he's a great drum programmer and a great bass programmer. I'm pretty good at uh, drum and bass programming, but he's better. Yeah. So he'll play the stuff. Now, I'm a real anal, man. I'm going to want to make velocities be a certain way. Mm-hmm. I'm going to change some, maybe some stuff in the drums and the bass and even the piano part. So he'll send me the MIDI. We have the same setup. We have virtually all the same uh, instruments, virtual instruments that we use. So he'll send me all the MIDI, and I'll start messing with that stuff. And it, it's a long process. There's a bunch more technical stuff that goes along with it that would bore you to death, mm-hmm. so I won't get into it. Yeah, but but uh, just just to tap into that just a little bit. So you're saying that your your sound modules and your your tone generators, whatever you're using for the the different sounds, you you have basically the same type of software, right? We have the gotcha. same exact software. Gotcha. Okay. I'm using Pro Tools. Uh-huh. He's using Logic, Logic but it yeah. doesn't matter. All the recording mm-hmm. ends up. In my studio, because I got the pro studio. Gotcha. So I'm so MIDI files come to me. We have you know we we use acoustic piano. We mm-hmm. use Superior drums. We use some other drum programs too. We yeah. use um, Trilogy Jocko bass. Right. Um, those are that's our main starting gotcha. spot. Okay, that's cool. And then after that, we have a lot of other you know synths and other modules for overdub stuff. Yeah. If I don't have what he has, or vice versa. We just record it on our own and make sure that the other guy approves. Gotcha. Yeah. And by the way, you know, we spent almost two years on that last record, and we're still really good friends. It's clear we can work together. <laughs> you know. <laughs> hey, let's try another. <laughs> what, what's that? Hey, let's try another record, right? <laughs> right. I mean, listen, if, you, if you, anybody gets onto a second record, they clearly can work together. You're right. Yeah. I'm, I'm a control freak, but and so's Randy to a certain degree, but... If one guy says no, it's off. Nobody tries to talk the other guy into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so we, we've, we've got that rule, and there's, there's right. never any arguing, man. And we yeah. usually agree on 99% of the stuff anyway. Yeah. Because we have the same musical tastes, you know. But in this, and then when, we, when I start singing or Randy starts singing, audio files are just constantly getting swapped all the time. Mm-hmm. And a real good thing about this is if anything happened to my studio or Randy's studio, there's files in a you know a state two thousand miles away, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're 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 backed up better than normally being backed up. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you have archives right. there. <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we we both are redundantly backed up in both places, so yeah. it's a good thing. That's good. I got to ask you a question about scene twenty nine. Is it is is it just you and Randy, or did you guys bring in anybody else uh, musician wise? It's just us. That's what I thought. Yeah. The only outside person is a, a, a lady named Carol Sings on GPS. You know, right, right. She's the, the she's the the chick in the box that's right. talking to us. Right, I like that and, song. And, that's, that was uh-huh. clever. That was clever. I like that song. It was clever. And and the, and, and the, <laughs> as the song gets deep into the you know uh, deep into it, uh-huh. she starts philosophizing. Right, you know? right. <laughs> no longer just giving directions. She's now become human. You know? <laughs> We're going to step back away from JAR. We'll get back to it in a second. But I've got another question from uh, Brian Pearson, who is one of our correspondents. Um, and he wanted to ask us uh, to ask you about an album project you released 
<clears throat> excuse me, in 1996 under the band name Rake and the Surf Tones, and the album is called <laughs> Surfers Drive Woodies. And after you like the title of the I album, I love the that's that's a classic. And after yeah, my and, girlfriend, you know, when 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 I came up with that title, um, she wasn't my girlfriend back then. But <laughs> she just cracked up, man. <laughs> Anyway, um, <laughs> everything about that album is supposed to be humorous. Oh, it's great. Well, I mean, just right down to the, the credits. You yeah. know, the... I spent, I had so much fun with this. Here's oh, what happened. God. So I'm, in, I'm on tour um, for the Airplay, the Airplay from the Planet album in 1994 in Japan uh-huh. and then Europe. Right. Uh, L.A. gets hit with a bad earthquake. Man, my house, my block was destroyed. I mean, it was not a pretty sight when I got back. Thankfully, I... I was on the road. I may have been hurt if I would have been here. I just destroyed the house and studio. Uh-huh. So it took two years for the rebuild, and after all the re- it was done, I needed to do a test in the studio. So I thought about doing surf tin. So I called my, all my buddies that I knew would love it. I'd been corresponding with Hungate, you know, David Hungate in yeah, Nashville, yeah. and uh, Dean Parks out here, and Jim Cox and John Ferraro, and I said, hey, how about we do a surf record for fun? So I said, everybody bring tunes, man. Bring as many tunes to the table as you want. We cut all the tracks in two nights. This record was done quick. You know, one thing I told everybody was, let's play like we're 14. Right. You know, because we we all played surf when we were young, and that's how that happened. Yeah. How about about the song Malibu Pier? Have you listened to that? (laughs) Yeah. That's Jim Cox, genius, you know. Uh How about his line, um, you may be, let me see. You may find your beauty queen or run into Ben Vereen. <laughs> you know, Foster accidentally ran into Ben Vereen one night on Highway 1, man. Ben Vereen had, had a stroke and was walking around half out of his mind, and Foster mowed him down. Oh, my and, gosh. And Jim Cox is writing lyrics about this. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, hey, hey, David, if you're listening to this, I had nothing to do with that lyric, man. Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, we were talking a second ago about some of the credits and some of the names you guys came up with, like like your name. You're, you're listed as producer, and uh, you were Todd Labrea. Pretty good name, huh? I love that. One name. of my favorites here was Steve Lukather was listed as Poop Fiction. That was he came up with that. <laughs> one. Of course he did. Of, of course, course he, he did. did. Yeah, right. Of course he did. And David, David Hungate was Hungus Hoodoo. As, <laughs> right. That's, that's a trem, now, not, now that's a trombone player though, because he had another alias name that's as true. a bassist. It's called Ed Hoodoo. I, right. I, think, I gave him that one. <laughs> did you really? <laughs> hey, Hungus is his nickname. His real nickname is Hungus. So Hungus. I just threw Hungus Hoodoo in there for the trombone stuff. <laughs> oh, gee whiz! I mean, I, even, mean, I asked everybody to come up with a name and if they didn't come up with it I'd come up with it I had so much fun writing those liner notes you, know? you must have had more fun writing the, writing the liner notes than the, the lyrics of the songs you know <laughs> how about how about some of these tins like Bach goes surfing I know. Yes. <laughs> you know the, the, that melody dun 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 the Bach classical piece right, right? right exactly exactly so, but it's public domain so I, I played that I wrote that for the head of the song and then when it came to the bridge I'll tell you, if Bach was alive, that's exactly what he would he would have written. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I love and then you. Jim Cox's minute wave thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh man, there's just some ridiculously funny stuff on there, man. <laughs> so what? I mean, so so what happened? Okay, you recorded it. It it it. it uh, you know, it was. Uh, how, how was that distributed or marketed or how did you get it out in the streets? How 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 did that go? Well, I had a deal in Germany. I had mm-hmm. a deal in Japan. Um, it's 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 it, that time, I don't think anything was happening in the States. Yeah. There was probably no CD Baby then. I can't remember, but it ended up at CD Baby in the long time, in the long run. And, you know, 
we tried to work it a little bit. You know, of course, my webmaster and personal assistant, Kirsten, yeah. which, you know, by the way, I told you lives in Umia, Sweden. Right, right. She runs my life out of there. It's amazing, man. That's cool. She's just brilliant. She's just such a go-getter and works so hard. I mean, look at the work she does on the website alone, you know. Right. Anyway, you know, we worked it as much as we could, but it's what it is, man. I mean, it's, it, it's the album's fun. You know, a, a real surf surfer kind of guy, and those kind of people yeah. would appreciate it for what it is, and I would hope everybody else would appreciate it for the humor. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, rake uh, and the surf tone. See, Jake the Rake, hence Rake, <laughs> you know, there's my nickname. But, uh -huh. you know, but uh, Surfers Drive Woodies, I'm really proud of that one. That's a good piece. I got to say, that was the best line, the best three words I've ever come up with. <laughs> Well, we've uh, we've jumped around a little bit. We're going to jump around a little bit more. And and another project, and in, and in particular, a guitar solo that you were a part of was uh, Steely Dan's Peg, and you know that was an amazing solo and apparently a tough one for Donald and Walter to nail down. And I guess I, I'd read somewhere that they'd gone through like seven different guitarists, you know, that attempted that that part. And and then of course they brought you in and they loved what you brought to the table. So tell us a little bit about your experience uh, with Steely Dan and how you brought the right sound and feel to that Peg solo. Right. Uh, their engineer of the time was a guy named Roger Nichols. Oh yeah, right. And I was re I was doing an album for God, I can't remember who it was, Jim Weatherly maybe. Mm -hmm. And I was playing. I had arranged the record, and I was doing all the guitar overdubs and stuff. And Roger was the engineer. And Roger says, "Hey, I'm going to recommend you to Steely Dan. We're having, they're having trouble with this solo." I go, "Hey, listen, man, that would be great because every studio guitar player wanted to be on a Steely Dan record." Right, right. Steely Dan. You know, that's another band that, that, well, of course, I love these guys because they think music, musically the way I think. Uh -huh. You know, and like I say, if there's going to be a comparison to Jar, that's it. Even though we don't really sound like Steely Dan, mm -hmm. it's the intelligent music, the intelligent lyric, you know, and, and chord changes and just teetering on jazz, right? Right. All right, so I get the call, I come into the session, and I listen to the tune, and I start playing my typical pop with a bit of jazz influence uh, stuff over it. Right. And after about an hour, they go, well, this stuff's pretty good, man, but, you know, it, you, you think bluesy. Now I'm thinking, okay, the chords are C major 7 to G2 over B. Okay, I can't think bluesy on the C major 7. That would sound weird. Mm -hmm. But on the G2 over B, there I could use the dominant 7. I could use the F in the scale. I could get bluesy over that. So that was my thinking. That's how he set me off. And then I play those two, uh, those double bands at the very beginning. It mm -hmm. clearly shows the dominant seven in the pattern in one spot of it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I just thought along those lines all the way. I'm going back and forth between dominant seventh and, and melodic pretty, kind yeah. of. Uh, you know, and um, that's how it went down. Right. And, um, you know, I was just hoping my solo would make it in the record. And, uh, you know, I mean, even this solo is 31 years, 32 years old, man. Amazing, amazing. And I still, all the time here, man, it's one of the best guitar solos of all time. Yes. I'm not saying that. Yeah. That's what I hear. I, I think it'd be right up there, that's for sure. Well, yeah. hey, man, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's, listen, I've played solos I think are a lot better, man, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh -huh. but that one really stuck. Mm -hmm. And I've heard it, it's been on the radio so much over the years, I've heard it so many times, I basically know most of the solo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't know any of the stuff I played. I can't play you one song off the last Jar album, or this <laughs> new Jar album yet. Yeah. I mean, 
or I write them, I forget them. I take that hat off and I'm thinking other ways, you know? Right, right. So it's like, um, I think I'm getting the rights back to a, vi- a guitar video I did in the ni- 80s or 90s soon. If I do that, uh, I described how the solo's played, yeah. and I'm sure it'll end up on YouTube. You're right. You know what? Uh, you you know that this, uh, your your solo on, on Peg has really become a, um, a, a classic, uh, something that's impressionable in everybody's mind. When you go on YouTube, and I believe uh, Rick, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a there's a there's a talented young guitarist. I don't even know his name, but I saw him, you know, uh, basically playing your solo behind, and he was playing the. Uh, there's a little video camera showing his his technique as as he performs note to note your solo. Have you seen that? I've seen about five or six of these guys. Yeah, right. They... If, if you think about it, email us. You know, email me through Kirsten at the website, and yeah. and. Um, Point me to that video because yeah. nobody's ever played it right. Yeah, well, I mean well, they played the notes, sure. but I will look at the finger fingering. Yeah, and you know because there's the guitar offers different ways to you know more than one place to play the same note. Yeah. Mm-hmm. these are the way these guys have, have, have you know this is the way these guys have decided it was played. <laughs> right, it's not. That's why You're I got to right. get mine up my my version up there at some point so the guys can really see how I did it. Yeah. yeah. And my point to that uh, was merely that people are trying to mimic and trying to replay what you did. I mean, that's that's just a compliment in itself. That, that's uh, true. That, that, that's my point there. I mean, they might not get it right or it might attempt, but just because the fact that they're trying to uh, to, to replicate a very difficult solo, I mean, that that's compliments off to you. That's amazing. I, I And I, the, I really appreciate that, and it humbles me, man. You know what I mean? I just do what I do, man, yeah, you know? exactly. And I'll tell you what I think of myself as a guitarist. Yeah. I think I'm a little better than average. That's about it. <laughs> so, you know, that's my feeling about me. I know so many great guitar players, yeah. you know, I'm nothing. Yeah. And so when, when something like that happens, you've got to love it, you know? Yeah. yeah. One of our correspondents in, uh, in San Diego, Max Zape, um, he, he really wanted to, to know, you know, right before you, you played that solo, was there something in particular? I th- you might have alluded to that just a couple seconds ago, but what did Donald uh, say to you right before that solo? Is he, did he mention the word bluesy and that type of thing, or what kind of direction Only did he Only after, give? it was about an hour, and I was, you know, we'd, we'd, I'd probably played, and I was, you know, whatever I played, man, it was, would have been in a, a jazzy pop thing. Yeah, right. And it just wasn't getting it for him and, and Walter. I don't think Walter said one word the whole night. Really? But yeah, these guys are, these guys are, they're very bright guys. Mm-hmm. You know, they're very intelligent guys, you know. And they, it's, you know, they only, hey, they're great guys, don't get me wrong. Right. They just mm-hmm. don't, they don't say much. Mm-hmm. Unless they have something to say. Yeah. And um, they don't sit around and talk about nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. So he didn't. I, there wasn't any direction given until Donald mentioned the bluesy thing. Really? Okay. You yeah. know, so I already ran that down. You know. Yeah. This is shifting a little bit, but uh, Max Zape, the guy, the same uh, correspondent that uh, Eddie mentioned, he also wanted to know uh, that as a producer, is it more difficult to work with a group or an individual artist? Right. A group, by far. Because you have so many differing opinions, right? You get people ganging up on you, man. <laughs> right. You know, it's like the Manhattan Transfer would come in every night. Right. You know, now i got to deal with four. They have been rehearsing all day. We recorded the night before. Whatever we recorded was talked about when they were rehearsing the next day. And then they'd come in, and then they'd tell me what they want to change and fix. And i go, I don't want to change that. It's great. That's, mm-hmm. You know, why would you want to change it? I said, mm-hmm. and also, with all these ideas that you have, why do you need me? 
you, you produce yourself if you want all your all these ideas and <laughs> right, right. Now, here's my here's my rule of thumb with any artist I'm producing. I'm going to need my way most of the time because my vision is what it is as a package, okay? Sure. And if they, you know, and I'm the producer and I'm responsible for this and 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 hopefully I'm making the right decisions about the way the record should be made. Okay. I got to give the artist uh, you know, if the artist wants something, if I don't care fifty-one percent that the artist I, about the artist idea being in there, meaning it, I, I could, I'll let this idea in. But if I care fifty-one percent that it can't be in or right. higher, right. then it's not going to be in, mm-hmm. and I'll argue it out. But if every once in a while, you know, the, if their idea is at least okay, and I don't mind it, I may not love it, but I don't mind it, and I don't think it will hurt the record, mm-hmm. their idea gets to be in just to keep peace. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, this is, it's just dealing with human beings, man, you know? But, yeah. um, and then, you know, I, I love it when managers come in and start telling you how to make the record, or the A&R guy at the record company. <laughs> now I remember why I don't do this anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, managers, lawyers, A&R guys, artists, you know, man. You know, to to your point, I mean, you're talking about the managers, the uh, you know, all the auxiliary people that are around the circle of of the process of making the music. At where, where does the you know where where's the line, the sand that you know influence becomes like you, you're really ruining my mojo here as to what I w- really want to happen here in making the music. You know, how far have you been pushed from the music side, the business in, invading the side of the creative? Well. Let's see, the, the line is when anybody other than me opens their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> That's the control freak in you, right? <laughs> no, no, man, realistically. Yeah. Oh, I've had managers want to change sequence of albums, and then they go to the record company, and they talk the record company into it, and then the record company comes back to me and goes, come on, man, let it be this way. I go, you guys are all wrong, and then I'm forced to do it. Mm-hmm. No, man, you know, it's just... Why hire me if, if your opinion, you know, if you think you should be making the record? You know, any, yeah. first of all, anybody that would be a manager has an out-of-control ego, period. Right. That's not to say that my ego is not out of control. It is, but on another level. Right. To the good of the project, not looking at, uh, that, you know, that, uh, that didn't make sense. My ego is out of control as well, or I wouldn't be doing what I do. Mm-hmm. But, but the, I'm making the record, not, not the manager, right, you know? Right. Not, not the A&R guy. Not, you know, the artist is involved in the record, but you've got to trust my judgment. You've got to let me have my vision. I get the whole package in my mind. Yeah, right. You know? Well, yeah. Whether, uh, you know, I, uh, hey, man, don't get me going on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting the heart rate, man. Like, chill, man. <laughs> tell you, let, let, me, let me switch topics on you. Let, yeah, really. <laughs> I, I want to talk to you real quick about David Foster, and you guys go way back professionally, but even more important, you two are really good friends, and, and one of our correspondents, another correspondent, Scott Gross, who is down in Tampa, wanted to know how and when you and uh, Foster met and how you discovered that you had such a great chemistry working together. Mm-hmm. I was working at uh, a club called the Etcetera Club in Hollywood. It was right across the street from A&M Records, and it was in the early 70s, really early 70s. Uh-huh. And, you know, I was doing a few record dates and doing demos, but I hadn't really caught on yet in a big way. Mm-hmm. So... Foster comes in one night, and I'm back, you know, we're outside on the break, and uh, he says, um, hey, man, uh, you know, you play great, blah, 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 um, and he wanted to hire me 
to play on something he was producing. I think it was a Skylark record. And I also, he also knew, or I told him, one of the two, that I had an ARP 2600 synthesizer and I did some programming. If you needed that, I could bring the synth along. Uh-huh. However that went down, he said, yeah. Well, I went to the session. It was the next day or a couple of days later, whenever it was, and they're playing the track, and the first thing I said, who is that piano player? Uh-huh. I said, this guy is unbelievable. Uh-huh. And it was David. Yeah. Whoa. Man, I couldn't believe how great he plays, man. Yeah. The best pop rhythm piano player. Him and Michael Armardi are the best two pop rhythm piano player guys of all time. Yeah. But anyway, so that was the beginning of our friendship. And, you know, we, were, we, we both started getting busy doing record dates right after that, and we both recommended each other all the time. And, you know, any, anything Foster was producing or arranging, I played on and vice versa. Um, but I hadn't started producing yet. He started producing before me. But arranging gigs or whenever I'd get him on a record date, I would. And yeah. that's how it started. Well, speaking of David Foster, and uh, let's talk a little bit about that collaboration you guys did in 1980 uh, called Airplay. <laughs> and, this, and the self-titled release uh, called Airplay. And, and that was, uh, you know, that, that album featured so many amazing oh. A-list players, oh such God. as, you know, Jeff and Steve Percaro, David Hungate, Steve Lukather. So there's Toto for you. Uh, right. Ray Parker Jr., Jerry Hay, Bill Champlin, uh, Tommy, Tommy Funderburg, yeah. and, and of course you and David Foster and some others. But uh, the, this album was, was huge in terms of its importance to what is termed as, as West Coast AOR. And, right. and many call it, I've heard it referred to as a masterpiece. And what was it about this album that, that catapulted it as somewhat of a legacy album? Right. That baffles me, because we were just doing what we do. I mean, we, yeah. we didn't sound like anybody, that's for sure. And I'll tell you one thing, and the, the album was like overproduced, man. There's never a dull moment. <laughs> I mean, any yeah. hole we could fill, we would fill. Uh-huh. It's like Foster says, man, there's no air in the album until we come to the song Bix. Right. And Bix is about um, a movie, uh, is a character in a movie called uh, High School Confidential. It was a drug propaganda movie. Okay. And um, there was a, there, there was a, a, a chauffeur for Mr. Big. Uh, his name was Bix, and he said, Bix likes it when you play it cool. <laughs> so I sat Steve Kipner down and had him watch the movie. Yeah. And I said, write something about this. <laughs> Bit. You know, it's just for silly stuff. You know? I wondered about that because I, I knew I'd heard that line and I couldn't remember where it was from. And, and uh, so it's from High School Confidential. Yep, it was starring okay. Russ Tamlin and Mamie Van Doren. Right, right. The movie's hysterical, man. Yeah, I've seen it. It's, it's just ridiculous, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, so here's how this came about. Foster and I were playing on a record session for Maureen McGovern okay. at Dawnbreaker Studios. Mm-hmm. And... On the break, David starts fooling around with this ballad, and I meander over to the piano and start singing a melody over these changes. And David says, hey, after the session, let's go to your house. You know, I had, my, I had a studio back then, a little studio. He says, let's go back to your house and work on it. And I said, great. So after the session, we did. Hence the song, Should We Carry On? We demoed it up. I sang a thing. I never considered myself a singer, man. I really don't like singing. But... Um, Anyway, we demoed it up, and David played it for Tommy Matola, who was Hall & Oates' manager of the time. And Tommy says, hey, this sounds great. Let me see if I can get you guys a record deal. We weren't looking for a record deal. We were just trying to pitch the tune. Yeah. Anyway, bang, we get a record deal. Uh-huh. Now we're artists. <laughs> we make the record. Um, it, uh, there was a, 
there was a um, changing of the guard at RCA uh, in the middle of us making the record, some new president of the company. So what happens when that happens? Every artist that just made a new record gets dropped. Uh, they still released it, but they didn't work it at all, man. There wasn't any promo. Yeah. But in Japan, since it was released worldwide, Japan picked up on it on their own, and it just exploded, and, and it also in pockets of Europe. Oh, right, right. It exploded, man. Yep. Mm -hmm. And with no promotion, nothing. Mm -hmm. David wanted to go tour. Now, here's where I blew it. I hated flying on airplanes. Really? I said, man, I don't want to do this. I blew it. Airplay would have had a huge shot if we would have toured it. You know, nothing in the States, but it may, may have got out in the States. I don't know, but I made a big mistake, man. Wow, wow, wow. Hmm. So, and by the way, the record still sells unbelievably well in yeah. Japan and Europe. Oh, right. yes, it Well, does. I just recently read that this album was re-released in Japan toward the end of uh, last year on something called an SHM CD, which is a super high material CD. And yeah, I heard about that, too. Yeah, do, do you know anything about those? I, I, no, I'm not nothing. familiar with that format. They didn't bother to send me any. They're just using me. Okay. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, no, I don't know anything about that, but okay. this thing's been re-released a hundred times. Yeah. I remastered it at one point. I'd really actually like to mix the whole damn record again, but um, nobody wants to pay to do it. I mean, I'm not going to do it for free, but I do it re really reasonably. Yeah. It could sound so much better. Wow. Um, yeah, man. Anyway, um, Airplay's a good, a good record, overproduced, but... Definitely some good songs, and yeah. um, and it, and it seems to be responsible for starting at the West Coast trend sound. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's Definitely. what they say. I'm I'm not saying that. No, the, <laughs> you, you, they say that just the way you said it. So, hey, hey Jay, I I, I couldn't uh, we couldn't end this interview without talking about uh, a couple of the Grammy Award songs that you've actually uh, uh, written and produced. Uh, the first one, of course, was um, "After the Love Is Gone," which. Uh, of course, Earth, Wind, and Fire took the number one. Um, that Grammy, that for for that for the first uh, the first one you won, how did that impact your career? I mean, looking back on it now, all, over all these years, that song is so smooth and, and so relevant to today. Uh, that that was just an amazing uh, track. You want to know how the song came about? Yeah. Foster was at Motown with J.P. Morgan. He had produced an album with her um, that really never saw too much action, but the record is. is really good. I mean, it, I always liked that record. Mm -hmm. And he was over at Motown trying to pitch it to them. He was in the middle of playing a song and he spaced out and he ended up just ad-libbing. And what he ad-libbed was the chorus to After the Love Is Gone. Now, by the way, the title could be After the Love Has Gone or After the Love Is Gone. Right. Nobody seems to know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it works either way. Yeah. But anyway, Foster leaves Motown, comes right over to my pad and says, Listen to this chorus. And I said, whoa, man. He told me the story. He said, played the chorus, sang the melody. I said, whoa, that's great. So we sat down right then and finished the song. I came up with da-da-dum, da-da-da-da-da-dum, da-da-da-da-da-da-dum. And then Foster just kept taking it from there. Right. And there was the song. Now, here's something you probably don't know. Well, you would know this. You have the Airplay album. There's a version of After the Love Has Gone on the Airplay album. Right. Okay, that is the real melody in the chorus. Uh -huh. The Earth, Wind, and Fire version, people think that the harmony is the melody. Okay. Because it's so wide-ranging. Uh -huh. The airplay version is the one with the proper melody. Got you. Okay. I got you. I got and the you. Same, the same for the airplay, for the planet version that I recorded. Mm -hmm. That's the proper melody. That's interesting. interesting. Yeah. 
That's so right. now, how did the Grammy impact me, man? Yeah. Um, what a what a great thing for us to be thanked by our peers, you know, for something that we just normally do, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it helped me, you know, get more work, man. The, the, the Grammy is a, a a key to opening the door, man. You know. You got it. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and were you going to ask about turn your love around? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, here's a good story. <laughs> I love it. Is Luke this involved? going to crack you up. <laughs> yeah, really. Is Lucifer involved? <laughs> Lucifer's involved, but I'm the one. But I'm. But I'm the one with the, with the doing the, the weird, funny stuff on this oh, one. As you'll okay. know in a second. All right. You'll hear in a second. So I get called by Tommy LaPluma to to come up with two tunes for the George Benson collection album, or at least one, mm-hmm. and to produce it. And I've only got like four days. They want to really move on this. So for the first two days, I'm trying to write something. I'm getting nothing. Third day, I come up, um, or the third day, yeah. The third day, I'm sitting on the can. (laughs) 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 And I come up with a chorus, melody, and chord changes in my head. Man, I get off the can as fast as I can. Run down to the piano, turn the cassette machine on, and play. And play the you know what? Machine. You're having a movement. I was right. This, is, this was definitely another movement on top of a movement. Now, see, I told you guys were going to crack up. <laughs> Look, there's not the butt end of the joke, and this is not me. I want to make I want to make this my final question. I had it written down, and I wanted to ask. Without a doubt, you and Luke are, are two phenomenal guitarists in your own right. But who has the sickest sense of humor between the two of you? It's pretty much a toss-up. <laughs> <laughs> you notice I've been keeping it very clean. Today. Yes, you have. I know. I've been, I've been waiting. I've been waiting for you to no, break out. I'm grown up now. <laughs> but if, 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 if Lukather and I were doing this together, it would be another story. Let's yeah. do that sometime. <laughs> Absolutely, no problem. I love. I'm. I'm, I'm never going to grow up. <laughs> Who knows how many songs Luke has written off the pot? You know. <laughs> That's correct. All right. So anyway, the, the, let me continue with the story. So. All right, Luke, that either that night or the next night we were going out to dinner, and um, I said, hey, man, I, I need a verse for this song. So I said, look, I've got to take a shower still, so why don't you just see if you can come up with a verse. Or I baited him by having him come early to do this. Whatever, I wanted him to come up with a verse. I get back. I come downstairs after taking a shower. He's got the verse nailed with a B section. I said, after dinner, man, we've got to call Champlin. Get him over here. We'll all work on a bridge, and we'll get Champlin to write the lyrics. That's what happened. Wow. We demoed it up the next day. Of course, they love the song, and thankfully, the rest is history. Yeah, yeah. those are ma- the most famous and beautiful three, the, the first three chords of any song. Ba, ba, ba. You Isn't know? that nice? Oh, it's just beautiful. You know, it just. And ironically, Luke, uh, Luke and Paige just uh, finished up a, a, a producing a track with, uh, with George Benson just, wow. just about a month ago. Really? Nice. Yeah, they're working on something else with them, so. But, hey, we really appreciate all the time you spent with us. I, I know we've gone a little bit long, but I really appreciate it. I know our audience will really appreciate it. Yeah. And we're really uh, looking forward to the next JAR album. Yep. Uh, thanks, guys. And for our audience out there that hasn't heard the current JAR album, I hope they get it because i got to tell you, of all the records I've ever done, this is the best record I've ever done. Well, that's, that's interesting. interesting. It's really a real love of mine. I think Randy and I really, really did a good job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh, I was going to also mention to the audience, if you want more information on Jay, you can go to your website. You've got two webs- websites, jgraden.com and jgraden.net, correct? I don't know about the .net thing. I, guess, I think Kirsten has that. I don't even know about that one. You'd have to ask her, yeah. but 
Okay. You can, um, but also there's jarzone.com. Oh, that's true. Yeah. But you can get to jarzone from jgraden.com, too. Right, okay. right, right. Sounds good. But, um, hey, thanks, fellas. I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah thanks I, a lot. Very much very so. Appreciate. And I, I really want to thank Kirsten. She really worked her butt off. Uh, she's so, she great? Oh, she's great. Kirsten, if you're out there, thank you so much for this. Uh, she'll, she, believe me, she'll listen to this. <laughs> and, she, and she deserves a major recognition, like I say, without her... I don't know what I'd do. I mean, she runs my life. That's great. That's you cool. know, from uh, thousands of miles away. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it is, hey, there's the internet for you. Yep. There you go. Jay, thanks so much, and good luck this year in 2009. Thanks, fellas. Thanks right. a lot. Bye-bye. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Bye. Very special thanks to Jay Graydon for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. For more information about Inside Music Cast, check out our website at InsideMusicCast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and MySpace. We'd love to hear from you, and we always take our listeners' input and suggestions into consideration. So drop us an email anytime at input at InsideMusicCast.com. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. <laughs>